So I'm first just going to ask you to say who you are and what your current um, title is. Okay, my name is David Greaves. Um, I'm currently a professor of inflammation biology at the Dunn School of Pathology in Oxford. Wonderful. And can you tell me how you first became interested in, in science? I, I guess uh, I guess when I went to big school, went from a village school, age 11 to big school, and uh, I was very excited because you had a chemistry lab and a physics lab and particularly a biology lab. And so um, I remember a couple of, you know, I always enjoyed chemistry and physics and um, it was kind of nice in the sense when other children had problems with homework, they'd come and see me rather than the teacher. So <laughs> I guess that's maybe where the teaching gene came mm, from. Mm. But uh, there's a couple of experiments I distinctly remember. Who doesn't love the sight of sodium being put in water and fizzing around? I mean, that's pretty impressive. Uh, I'd do that every chemistry practical if I could, but I wasn't allowed to. But the two experiments and, and the two biology things that really, really captivated my imagination, one was looking at pond water or puddle water under a microscope and seeing all of a sudden these massive paramecium and all these protozoans, free-living protozoans, zooming around under a light microscope, really uh, thought it was fantastic. So maybe that's where the seed of phagocytosis was planted, these <laughs> huge creatures where they looked huge under the microscope, uh, swimming around chasing down their prey. And then I think in the sixth form, uh, suddenly we had a, a double period, for those that remember those uh, full 80 minutes on meiosis and mitosis, and really that captured my imagination that we are the product of our genes and that they get replicated uh, every time a cell divides. So really uh, that sort of drove home, is, is everything that we are the product of our genes and our environment? So I guess paramecium and uh, meiosis, mitosis were the big triggers to my interest in biology. Mm. And was science something that was discussed at home? No. <laughs> which is one of 13 subjects you studied at school and you just got on and did your homework. So uh, certainly I think the science really came from uh, the hands-on experiments in the laboratory and uh, I guess uh, a little bit of reading of science fiction, uh, Asimov and things like that, sort of to try and take where we are now and try and fast forward a couple of hundred years to the direction it might take us in the context of science fiction. But were your parents supportive of your interest in science? Oh, well, I had two younger brothers, so they had their hands full. <laughs> they, were, they were not supportive. Mm. They, uh, but I guess when it came to choosing university courses, I think I was very much driven by scientific curiosity rather mm. than going to medical school. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that was uh, sort of driven by trying to understand the basic science. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So wh where did you choose to go to Oh, university? I went to Bristol University. You have to remember, of course, another important factor betrays my age, that when I was a teenage boy, uh, they just discovered recombinant DNA, DNA engineering, mm. and it was banned throughout the world. So if ever you wanted to interest a teenage boy in science, the best thing to do would be to ban all work on recombinant DNA engineering. And of course, I just wanted to get my hands and start recombining bits of DNA in, the, in test tubes. So that was a, a, a big driver as well. If you ban something that I find interesting, I, I need to work on that. Right. <laughs> so it was a, a biological sciences? Yeah, so, yeah. so I did microbiology and biochemistry. All oh, right, yes. And yes. then uh, I went and did a PhD that had a lot of genetic engineering and 
in King's College, London. By which time the um, um, oratorium was Oh, it had presume. been lifted for some time, yeah, but yeah. Uh, things were going full steam ahead. And that was really looking at uh, gene expression. And uh, that was my first foray into beta globin gene expression with Roger Patient at King's College, London, in the Drury Lane uh, laboratory. It's where actually the first structures, the X-ray diffraction structures, were done by Morris Wilkins and Rosalind Franklin. So that was, in a sense, one experience of following on the footsteps of standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm, this was mm. a laboratory where a very profound experiment had been performed. And, and was that an, it, something that influenced your choice of, of King's as a place to do? Not really, but I guess looking back at it, I've been inspired by uh, people who've done important experiments in, your, in that institution or that building. Uh, I guess that and consciously considered that, but it was certainly something I was very proud of mm. to be in the laboratory. It had such a special history, such a special place in the history of science, basic science and medicine. And there were, just going back to your undergraduate time, there was never any doubt in your mind that you were going to continue with a scientific career? No, no, mm. no, just, uh, no, just, uh, I was really interested in just, and, and then of course I had my first lab experience, which was making some DNA from fungi and then doing restriction mapping and running it on a gel. So that just only served to say, yes, I like science, I like doing experiments, mm. I like DNA and uh, looking at it, yeah. So, um, sorry, you did start to tell me what the topic of your um, PhD was. Oh, it was fairly boring. It's, uh, it was the beta-globin genes of the South African claw tree toad and Xenopus labus. So, so taking an evolutionary look at beta-globin genes were big back in the 1980s. And so they were the first genes we cloned and started looking at. So uh, it was taking a sort of an evolutionary look at how the gene regulation of the globins, which are important red cell proteins that make up hemoglobin, how that transcription is regulated. That's what I was working on then. Mm -hmm. But it's more just genetic engineering per se. How can you manipulate and sequence DNA before it? became massive as it did later on. Mm, mm. So you were still in, in at the stages of developing the technology? Yeah, absolutely. Mm, mm, mm. Good. Mm. Uh, and who, oh yes, you said your supervisor was Roger Patient. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the funny thing was he was a newly appointed university lecturer, so on my first day as a graduate student I turned up to King's College Biophysics and I said, my name is David Groove, he said, who are you? I said, I'm working for Roger Patient, he said, who is he? And he didn't turn up for another hour, so I had a rather nerve-wracking start to my graduate studies. We worked out pretty well. Mm, mm. Uh, and uh, at the end of that, did that, did that go well? Your, your well, it's, it's, um, it's hard for people now to realize that um, you know, without kits and without sequences and without, you know, it was all, every piece of data you had was very hard won. Mm. And uh, we had no personal computers. So even just compiling DNA sequences by hand was extremely tedious. And then uh, typing and entering the data by hand, very, very tedious. So uh, I, I am proud of my PhD thesis, but it's like, I don't leave it in the office. Uh, <laughs> things were harder back then. Yes, yes. And writing up was hard as well. It's, uh, it was quite challenging. Mm, mm. So I guess uh, when I was doing this, uh, one of the things uh, was they're still very keen on science, and the obvious thing to do next was to go for a postdoctoral fellowship. Mm -hmm. But again, without the internet, without email, 
had to sort of write letters on the typewriter and uh, send them off in the post and hope they got there. Mm. And so I applied to a number of laboratories. Mm. Uh, on, on the basis of the publications they were putting out? Absolutely. What yeah. Absolutely. What was interesting to me was uh, so I applied to Margaret Buckingham in Paris, who was working on muscle cell differentiation. Pete Borst in Amsterdam, who was working on how gene regulation is regulated by mobile genes, how pieces of DNA would move in the genome to be expressed. And that was part of, and so that's where I went in the end, but I applied to some other laboratories in the US. But it's, uh, as I say, the days of email, people want an answer in five minutes. Uh, it was after five weeks, you hadn't heard anything, you'd maybe send another letter, and then maybe a couple of months later, say, oh yes, you've got, lost your letter, and we don't have any places for postdocs <laughs> at the moment. But uh, I was, I was, so I went to Amsterdam, and uh, straight after I finished my PhD in London, and uh, yeah, I, I can see there's a sort of the second half of my PhD in many ways. It was a, a great learning experience, and uh, so I didn't really see it as a first postdoc as sort of a more a continuation of mm -hmm. learning about science and scientific method, and um, I found it fascinating. And uh, socially, it was a great place to live years and to, uh, it was a great place, Amsterdam in the 1980s. And you were still um, working on, sorry, I think you said, but were you still working with globin genes? And no, no, I moved then from globin genes to trypanosome oh, right. genes. Mm. But again, the, the, really the, the regulation of gene expression was in very early stages at that point and, and how that was working. So um, yeah, I had a, a two-year fellowship from the Royal Society to, to undertake that research. But so, so that was a, was that was the first time you'd worked on a pathogen. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So yes. In, in a sense, that's the first time I worked on a pathogen as opposed to basic science. So I guess that marked the beginning of a move into pathology mm -hmm. for diseases per se. Mm. So then I, I I stayed only two years in Amsterdam because I had two years funding. I came back to the UK to get married. Uh, so that was kind of strange between jobs and uh, getting married and then starting a new. Uh, work at the MRC laboratories in Mill Hill in North London, working for another Dutchman, uh, Frank Grossalt, who at that time was working on the human globin genes and how they were regulated. And it's through that we got into making transgenic mice to study human globin gene expression in transgenic mice. And I guess the, the move to pathology started with making a mouse model of human sickle cell anemia. Oh, yes. So that was a uh, project that was made possible when we understood the gene regulation of the human and alpha globin gene loci. And so we did make, when I was in Mill Hill, a mouse that had high levels of human beta and alpha globin, and particularly the sickle cell variant of human beta globin. And these mice did, when you took their blood, they would form sickle cells in low oxygen tension. That's when I really became interested in human disease, human pathology, uh, through talking to people in, uh, in London and in the southeast who have families, have family members with sickle cell anemia and begin to realize that it's great to play with DNA, it's great to look at genes, but for people that could have an important consequence mm. in their health and well-being. And so I, that's really, I guess, where I became more interested in using mouse models to understand human diseases. And so that was a large part of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And so the job at Mill Hill, that was a, again a, a short-term postdoc. It was actually, it was a, it was supposed, I was supposed to go into parasitology. I was on a tenure track to go and work on parasitology. Unfortunately, the gentleman who was heading up that new initiative at Mill Hill, that's going from trypanosomes to malaria, it would have been. Uh, unfortunately, he died before he could take out the post. And so I stayed with Frank Grossfeld and worked for four years on transgenic mice, sickle cell anemia, and beta gene regulation. So that was. Uh, career pathway is not always about your own choices. Sometimes no. things happen mm -hmm. and uh, so they didn't really have much. Uh, I, it was a great time for me personally, there were a lot of great experiments and uh, it, was, it was a laboratory and you could just get on and do experiments. You didn't have an undergraduate, so very few graduate students, never had to write for money. Most of the stuff was in the building somewhere. So it was a great place to be a young scientist. Mm -hmm. Did the Dunn School come next? No, there was no, a short, short interregnum. I, um, I spent two years in industry in the UK working for GD Sil Monsanto. And uh, that was just about long enough to realize this was not what I was, uh, not a good environment for somebody who had a curious mind or a, uh, an inquiring mind. So um, I, I, that moved me to Oxford. Was that was that um, just because they expected too much in the way of kind of outputs, defined outputs? Yeah, that, <laughs> that's true. I mean, it's uh, so the pharmaceutical industry had a lot of smart people there, but at the end of the day, the experiments or the direction you take is not down to you. It's not necessarily even down to how well you're doing. It's down to other considerations, and so uh, I think that was an important lesson. And this was um, in the early '90s, and so. Um, I think the pharmaceutical industry has undergone a lot of change since then, uh, but that was the old school um, Santo GD model of these are the things we work on. And uh, the day um, I was made redundant, sort of 28% of the workforce worldwide was made redundant. So uh, I guess that was kind of a novel experience, yeah. uh, being made redundant. And uh, I started looking for jobs. And that's actually, I answered an advertisement in Nature for a postdoctoral job with Simon Gordon here in the Dunn School. Mm. And that was uh, the very end of 1993, mm -hmm. 1993. And very much looking to try and apply the things I'd learned in Mill Hill in the study of globin genes to the study of a different cell type going from erythroid cells into macrophages. And uh, that was uh, a very positive step in my scientific career. So what did you know about the Dunn School when you first applied? Was, was mm. this just one of a number of jobs you I didn't. I didn't really to? know about it. Mm. It was um, Oxford uh, strange, it was a rather strange uh, institution coming from somewhere like Mill Hill where everyone worked for the same employer. Uh, there were the departments who just used to play football against them. They didn't sort of, they weren't separate buildings, they were just different floors mm. in a very large building. So yeah, the, the whole Oxford thing was, was strange and I guess uh, my knowledge of Oxford uh, was limited because I was coming via pharmaceutical industry mm. and so um, I had I'd heard of Simon Gordon, I'd vaguely heard of macrophages and so I guess... And, I, and you'd heard of florian, penicillin and all that kind of stuff, had you? Not really. Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> well obviously my first degree was microbiology, I yeah, knew yeah. about antibiotics. Yes. But in a sense the, the way we teach science uh, was maybe more functional than trying to set up the history of 
uh, of this. Yeah. I suppose like everyone, I think one of the fascinating things about the dance school and about penicillin is that everyone's aware of penicillin was a happy accident. That's the discovery in St. Mary's uh, by Fleming. But not many people really appreciated the, the challenge of going from an observation, a chance observation, to a therapeutic drug and understanding its mode of action. Uh, that I think, if you ask most of the general populace, they were aware of the story behind penicillin, but hadn't fully appreciated the difference between the chance observation and what we would call now translational medicine, mm. turning that observation into a useful therapeutic reagent. Mm. And so I think there's still a, a big gap in, if you will, the public understanding not of science, but of how science is done. Yes, yes. And uh, I sort of, uh, I took that on through public outreach work. Uh, my brother got me to give a lecture in a, on the history of medicine, particularly the history of penicillin, as part of the outreach he was doing in the Thackeray Medical Museum in Leeds. And so that's really when I first read into the whole story behind the discovery and development of penicillin. Which, so I didn't really appreciate that properly until I started teaching it, if you will, or oh, talking about it. Mm, mm. But it was, it was Simon Gordon's um, work that uh, attracted you. you knew Absolutely, it was yeah. a job. It yeah. was a postdoctoral job, and I was fascinated to try and apply my skills I'd acquired in, in you know, gene expression and uh, some of the work in terms of uh, working with immune cells in industry to, to turn that attention into cell type I became to appreciate greatly and continue to work on yep. macrophage. Mm. So what, I think you did say it before that but I'm just double checking again what year was it that you arrived? In I arrived in November 1993 in the same week that Herman Waldman arrived from Cambridge as ah. the new head of department. So we were both very new to the building and uh, although I wasn't appointed by Herman and my postdoctoral fellowship coincided with the start of his term as head of department. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and, and how did you find it as, as an institution compared with what you'd known previously? What, what difference did it make, for instance, being part of a teaching, a, a big teaching? Yeah, I think that was actually a big, big difference for me, is being exposed to undergraduate teaching. And so I, I, I started taking that up, and I, that's how I learned about pathology, was through teaching it. And so I think that was definitely a very vibrant culture, because term time and teaching and trying to bring through a series of young people, get them to understand the basics of pathology. Uh, that was very um, intellectually stimulating, so you're always trying to stay ahead of the students you're teaching. And I guess there are a lot more graduate students doing projects than I've been used to at Mill Hill or obviously in industry. And so that also gave it a certain energy uh, in the sense that there were always people doing experiments around you. And so I thought that was a, certainly a, a very stimulating intellectual environment in which to do experiments and in which to think about doing experiments. So, so how many people were in Simon's group when you joined it? At any one time, uh, I guess it's about 20, 25 oh, people at its height. So uh, yeah, they were a combination of medical students doing PhDs, South African students doing PhDs, undergraduate project students, and postdoctoral workers. Uh, there were three or four senior postdocs at that time. So yeah, it was a big lab and uh, a very stimulating 
environments in which to work. Mm -hmm. and, and how did the research go? Oh, it, slightly randomly, Tadaichi sort of um, tried to find, so, so it took a long time to learn about macrophage cell biology uh, and uh, to how to manipulate macrophage gene expression. So essentially many of the projects we're doing now had their genesis in the time as a postdoc with Simon, in particularly identifying a gene that's expressed at a high level in macrophages in mice and humans, and then using the elements of that gene to drive expression of other genes, make transgenic mice, as I've been doing in Mill Hill, to try and make animals that had elevated expression of certain genes and looking at knockouts of certain genes and what they did to the macrophage in the context of the whole animal or its response to inflammation or disease. Mm. I should have asked you before just to explain a little bit about sure. what the macrophage does. Sorry, so the macrophage the, uh, is a very interesting cell type. It's, um, it's found in all tissues of the body. Uh, we used to think it came only from monocytes from the bone marrow into the blood and then into tissues. But we now know that a lot of these macrophages are seeded in fetal uh, life and then they self-renew within tissues. So in any tissue, say in the liver, you find Kupfer cells, which line the liver sinusoids, but you also find interstitial macrophages in amongst all the other cells. And, and a term that Simon Gordon has coined is this phrase, tissue homeostasis. So they constantly looking out for tissue damage, whether it's sort of biochemical, uh, or change in oxygen tension, or changes in metabolite concentrations, but also keeping an eye out for any potential pathogenic invaders, bacteria, viruses, fungi. And so the macrophages are wonderful sentinel cells in all tissues, so detecting the first signs of pathogen invasion or changes in tissue homeostasis, and they react accordingly. And so uh, when I came to the Dunn School in Simon's lab, there was a sabbatical visitor for a very short sabbatical called Tom Shaw, who came from California and had been studying proteins that cause macrophages to be attracted to sites of injury and infection. And these are called chemokines or chemotrapsin cytokines. And so through that um, chance meeting within Simon's lab, uh, I started working more and more on chemoattraction of macrophages and that led into study of inflammation where you have tissue damage or infection and you have a large collection of leukocytes gathered at the site of inflammation or damage, and that process is acute inflammation which can turn into chronic inflammation, diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or atherosclerosis, which happens in our large muscular arteries. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of macrophages gather in those lesions and uh, cause damage. And it's the chemokines that draw them there, is it? Yes. Yeah. That's, uh, they do a lot more, and we now appreciate they do lots of other things, but it was uh, certainly a lot of the work in my laboratory uh, has subsequently been on how monocytes and macrophages travel to sites of injury and how that's involved in inflammation. And uh, so that aspect of macrophage cell biology is something we find very interesting and continue to work on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but you, you obviously didn't stay as a postdoc forever. <laughs> well, I know I was very fortunate. I applied for um, funding from the British Heart Foundation for that's called a research lectureship, basically to set up my own group within the Dunn School working on these chemokines, which I'd helped, which 
I worked on with Tom Shaw in Simon Gordon's lab. And so I got a, a salary and uh, a, a lectureship. So, um, and I started my own little group within Simon's lab space uh, in 1999. And uh, from that, I was very fortunate when uh, Tony Blair expanded the size of medical schools to train more doctors. Uh, couple of university lectureships became available in Dunn School and so uh, there were three or four positions available in one year and in one round uh, I was interviewing for the same positions with uh, people who was three new lectureships made up at the same time. Myself I was associated with Hartford and Jesus College, mm -hmm. Quentin Santantown who was associated with Magdalen College as a university lecturer in pathology in the Dunn School, and Chris Norbury, who was associated with Queen's College. So the three of us started as out as university lecturers, and we're still here. So <laughs> it can't be such a bad place to be. Mm, mm, mm. And, and did that expand the amount of teaching that, that you were doing? Absolutely. It yes. sort of formalized the, the sort of teaching from being rather ad hoc occasional lectures to uh, then after I got that position, Herman Waldman asked me to take over organization of the pathology, general pathology and microbiology course for second year medical students and to take on responsibility for organizing that in the recently opened medical sciences teaching center, the MSTC, mm. which I think opened in 2004. So that was a great time of change, moving into a building that was dedicated for teaching undergraduates classes that had previously been done in the teaching labs in the main building of the Dunn School. So uh, that was an exciting time, mm. as well as uh, more teach students to teach. We went from about 90 medical students a year to 150 medical students a year. So it's a lot of teaching to be done. Mm, mm. And, and um, for an individual medical student, how much, um, the, what, what did the pathology course Represent. Was okay, that so, a, so a lecture per per week, or it's essentially three lectures a week in a practical class. Yes, two practical classes in Nicholas term and some seminars. So, uh, for the second year students, it was of the four papers. It was one of the big. So, so it was a, the four courses. It's one of the big four that they had to study in the second year. Mm. So yeah, it's quite a big time commitment on their part. And on the teaching committee, yeah. a few staff. And so well. you were teaching part of that yourself, but otherwise organizing people. Yes, teaching organizing teaching, yeah. making sure that the practical classes were well run and educational, and uh, at the same time teaching, tutorial teaching within college as well. So that was something I wasn't aware of when you're outside of Oxford is how much work goes in to small numbers of students in college mm. over and above the sort of teaching in the department. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of teaching. Uh, and so you would be looking after all the medical students in your class? Yeah, yeah. So that's right, in mm. all three years, and yeah. teaching different subjects. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, just looking at the, the department as a whole, as you, so you've been here now for... Um, a little while. <laughs> a little while. <laughs> um, I'm interested in how technology has developed over that time in your area. What, okay. what, what, what changes have there been that have made it easier to ask the questions you want okay. to ask? I think there are a lot of big changes in the sense of in the 1980s in terms of, I guess, the biggest changes were things like polymerase chain reaction, mm -hmm. 
which allowed you to amplify pieces of DNA without recombinant DNA engineering, the things that had been banned in the 1970s that so attracted me to science. Nobody now does any cloning as such. And um, the automation of DNA sequencing, that all happened in the 1990s. And so I think uh, when I came to the, the Dunn School, I think it was still at that time, I think if we're totally serious, it was not trivial to get onto the internet and look up information. There was always fewer computers than there were people wanting to get on them. So in terms of the technology, I guess um, fewer ultra-centrifuges, that was a big thing in the 50s and 60s. Um, I think now the big difference is nobody makes their own buffers anymore, mm. and there's all the kits are available, and so much information available on the internet. But I think what um, is still sort of reassuring about the Dance School is how, you know, with all these huge consortia to sequence the human genome or to find out epigenetic marks, you sort of all seems to be basically computer-based uh, in silico investigations. I think what's important is you can make all these findings on your computer, but you still need to do a well-constructed in vivo experiment to test whether your favorite gene or your favorite pathway has some relevance in cell biology or in health and disease. So uh, in terms of my own work then, um, obviously microscopes were getting better and better, uh, but is knowing how best to use them. So I think in my laboratory it was really uh, investing in animal models of human disease to take our transgenic animal models into models of inflammation. I think that's probably the biggest change for me personally mm -hmm. uh, in my time in the Dunn School. And uh, that's the direction I've taken my research, is to try and investigate the role of macrophages in an in vivo setting. And that's where I think we've had a good measure of success. And to what extent has the, um, the broader environment of the Dunn School been helpful from, from the point of view of either formal collaborations or simply people you can go and tap on the shoulder and say, um, from your point of view, yeah. what, what do you I think, think about I think, this? I think one of the things that uh, is special even within Oxford is that the, the Dunn School is a very special place and it's very collegiate. So uh, I think through various heads of department and continuing to the present day, is that I think we uh, share in the success of those around us and celebrate that success. And within that, there are no barriers to collaboration. Only uh, people whose science or interests you or people and uh, who you, you, you share a similar overlapping scientific interests. So um, I think in that regard, it's, it's a very special department and uh, we've been very fortunate in having uh, heads of department who recognized the importance of that collegiality and encouraged it through Christmas parties or now through summer parties in the park but the, the, we, the feeling that we all have a shared endeavor I think is not common uh, in different departments within Oxford. And do you think the fact that you're um, sort of over on the horizon somewhere is an impact on human disease contributes to that sense of shared endeavor? Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's, it's hard to underestimate that people in this building uh, have 
developed penicillin and cephalosporin and look at George Brownlee and Erin Fodor, recombinant influenza strains and through the work of Herman Waldman sort of championing the use of antibodies as therapeutic agents. So that actually is um, quite sobering, the fact that some people have been able to turn their basic science into really effective human medicines is, uh, is at one time inspiring and also slightly um, intimidating, the idea that how you're going to join that great pantheon of people who made a difference. But I think it's all been underpinned by really strong basic science and not being afraid to follow your ideas. Mm, mm. And so, uh, yeah, that is inspiring and a little bit intimidating, if I'm honest. And, and has your own work um, had any links with um, commercial or Yes, so I've, I've patented, I said one of the proteins that we discovered in the Dunn School is a protein called Chemerin, and uh, together with a graduate student, I showed that What's the name of the graduate student? So Jenna Cash, mm -hmm. who's now working in Edinburgh. Uh, we showed that peptides der derived from this uh, host protein that's involved in chemoattraction and macrophages, that some peptides had a potent and unexpected anti-inflammatory effect. And so we patented this and we uh, developed this through to phase one clinical trials with the venture capital company in California to see if this anti-inflammatory peptide would have therapeutic efficacy in the inflammatory skin disease, psoriasis. But um, unfortunately, in, in the very first proof of concept experiments, we weren't able to see uh, benefit over the current standard of therapy, which is steroids. And so that was a very interesting learning experience and trying to take something we discovered in basic science into a, a proof of concept studies in, in humans. So that cost a little over a million dollars, but, and, uh, but in the end, the, the trial was stopped because it didn't show efficacy in patients uh, with psoriasis flares. But that was um, certainly a learning, uh, strong learning curve for me. Did you have support for that enterprise, either from the wider university or from within the Dunn Not enough. I mean, uh, in experiments uh, like this, I mean, it was very much encouraged, but the money came from venture capitalists. And uh, I was thinking uh, more about things like drawing up contracts and just dealing oh, with people. That oh. <laughs> yes, yeah, so in terms of contracts, I have an in-house lawyer. I've been married to a lawyer, oh. a litigious <laughs> lawyer for 30 years, so I have plenty of advice. Uh, on drawing up contracts. But no, I think that there is the, the expectation that you do good science, and if that good science might have potential benefits and spin out companies or potential drugs, you're certainly strongly encouraged to follow that uh, line of inquiry, but all the time that is coming out of very strong basic science. And so a number of the staff members have had gone down that road of trying to spin out ideas or spin out potential treatments. Uh, so it, it is a strongly encouraged, uh, but it, it, it always with, outs, uh, with the uh, basic science is the most important thing. Mm. Uh, and then within that, if that has potential therapeutic applications, absolutely strongly encouraged to follow that. 
uh, but not the other way around, not let's cure a disease and by the way can we write the odd paper. Always driven by basic science. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you said it was a very collegial place. Um, yes. Are there specific instances of collaborations that you, you can mention that have, have been important to you? Yeah, I think sometimes there's, there's specific collaborations that they might just be putting in touch with our people. I mean, one of the things that we've been doing recently is we developed a transgenic mouse where all the macrophages carry a fluorescent reporter gene expression at high level. And so I guess one collaboration within Oxford has been with scientists in cardiovascular medicine. So I've worked with a laboratory of Professor Keith Channon uh, to look at mouse models of atherosclerosis and uh, using this mouse and various other things. So I think that's been a long-standing collaboration within Oxford. But I think just really uh, people are uh, collegiate and uh, we were hoping to, we started looking at macrophage phagocytosis using a new uh, technique and that sort of uh, allowed us to collaborate with a lot of people in Oxford uh, who are interested in the process of how macrophages internalize pathogens or cellular debris. So I think that's something that's going to take off in the next couple of years. And what, what's the technique? The technique is called uh, live cell uh, visualization of phagocytosis mills. It's a machine called the Incusite, uh, and we combine that with labeling of uh, bacteria or cellular debris so that we can actually follow in real time the internalization of these particles and their engulfment by macrophages and the fusion with the lysosome and the beginning of their destruction. So this I think is going to be a very interesting technique as we start to use that as a functional readout for individual macrophages. It's a very large part of what macrophages do is eating things. Mm -hmm. The name macro means big and phagocyte is just the big eaters. And so uh, this is a kind of a, a useful technology to follow individual macrophages and their sort of eating debris or eating pathogens. And so we're going to use this functional readout to try and study macrophage functional diversity. And uh, be doing that with Chris Tang and William James in the Dunn School. And um, we're, we're really excited about taking that forward. Mm. So you've got all the imaging technology here in the department? We have yes. uh, got the machine and we're looking for money to get another machine. But really the interesting thing is what we can do once we have this functional assay up and running is we can use it to do interesting experiments to try and find small molecules or biological mediators that increase the appetite of macrophages for pathogens or trash. And so I think that could be really interesting in terms of uh, looking at wound repair, for instance, which is a big problem. Chronic wounds that don't heal can we encourage macrophages to do a better job of tidying up debris and killing bacteria. So that's uh, something we'll begin to start working on now. Mm -hmm. um, so something else we haven't talked about is how the physical environment of the Dunn School has changed since you've been here. Well, yes, it has. Um, I guess if you're focusing on doing your experiments and there's a lot of noise and hammer and bangering <laughs> going on, we kind of like, um, I guess I've lived through quite a few renovations. So when I came in 1993, there was just the main building. And then I guess um, after sort of replacing of lift shafts, which made a huge amount of dust and dirt and noise, then there's really the sort of expansion of the Dunn School site. 
Wait, but there was, yeah, sorry, you, there was a 60s building as well, wasn't there? Oh, is that's gone now. That was no, I know it's gone now, but that <laughs> must have been here when you came. Yes, I didn't go in there very often. Oh, right. That was the MRC <laughs> unit. Right. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's changed a lot. I mean, I guess... Was, uh, it, was Edward Abraham still there when you... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, he's sort of a funny little man would sort of scroll along the corridors looking very stern. Um, that's right. And, and Lord Flory, of course, was often came in on Fridays parked his BMW in front of the Dunn School and uh, uh, wandered around the building. So yes, all these figures were there, and in a sense, um, because if you're doing experiments, you get on with your experiments, I didn't fully appreciate all the history, uh, how much they had contributed in previous years to medicine and, and science and to the Dunn School as a place to work. So I guess um, that then we started seeing the building of the uh, the EPA extension, the, uh, the library, and the, uh, the collegiate dining space, and the, the laboratories at the back of that. So I think I'd have to look up the dates, but uh, that was the first sort of expansion phase. And then the next was when they knocked down the concrete building, the, mm -hmm. the CIU building, that was all taken down, and then they built the Oxford Molecular Pathology Institute, which was a huge build over five floors and I guess before that so they had the MSTC the teaching building before that so I guess I've lived through quite a lot of building uh, and the actual built environment is important but I think the most important thing is how people are have spaces where they can come together mm, mm. Uh, interact naturally uh, and that's I think it's been a really important part of the the built structure of the Dunn School mm. but it's it's there so that scientists can do experiments, but so that they come into contact with one another and uh, they're not separate buildings. And does that work well in, in OMPI? I think it works extremely well. Yeah. And uh, you know, obviously, uh, uh, I think it's been a great addition. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. There used to be some people would come in and out of the back door and would never come through the front door, so there was never any sort of mingling of some labs with others, whereas in this is the rebuild and the remodeling, I mean, people naturally gravitate to, towards the lecture rooms or the seminar rooms and, uh, and to the, the, the collegiate dining space. So I, I think uh, the, the architecture forces people together rather than allows them to have separate existences. And uh, hopefully our scientific productivity, our interactivity, stems from those in regular interactions. It's hard to hide in the dance school. <laughs> That's a very perceptive point. Um, I think we've more or less... Oh, you talked a little bit, you talked about this um, lecture that you gave for your brother. Yes. Um, have you done other public engagement types of activities? Yeah, it's, it's actually something I'm very... Uh, I, I think is very important. It's important it's done well. And so... Uh, anecdote, you can always edit it out. I always define my career aspiration is to be a tramp because uh, because of the way I dress, my wife would say, and not too bother about physical appearance. But actually the T is for teaching, the I is for research, A is for administration, which somebody has to do, M is for mentoring, which is different to public outreach, and P is for public outreach. But I think those two activities are very important. Mentoring is trying to encourage people to 
be interested in pathology as a subject and be interested in teaching and be interested in research and to encourage them to, to, to sample what's best about science. So mentoring is something I, I take very seriously at the undergraduates that come through Hartford College, trying to keep them well educated, but then trying to push them in directions which suit their temperament or uh, their skill base. And the same with my own graduate students, trying to encourage them to go to meetings and to think about what comes next uh, when they've finished their, their BPhil here in Oxford. So the P, the public outreach, um, I guess is partly, I, I did go into my daughter's school to talk about biology and particularly microbiology, and I've never seen anyone embarrassed for such a long period of time. She was bright red for a long time <laughs> as we sort of studied bacteria and the environment and taking that on. And so I guess um, in terms of public outreach, uh, it's apart from college open days, has really been um, to have been enjoyed talking to sixth form students in local schools who are interested in applying to read natural sciences or biology and giving them mock interviews, but really just talking to them about things that are interested in science and just to think for themselves uh, ahead of university interviews. So I found that very rewarding um, rather than uh, going out to schools to talk about science. But it's definitely something I think is really important and within the Dunn School there are people doing that and it's something very much encouraged my graduate students to do is to go out and talk about science and how science works to different uh, age groups of mm. school children in Oxfordshire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and what have you seen some of your graduate students go on to do? We haven't mentioned very many names in the course of this. Oh, no, I think it's well, useful to get some names in. No, in a sense it's... Um, so I was very, very pleased that Jenna Cash is working at the University of Edinburgh now and uh, taking forward work in wound repair. Uh, I'm trying to think as of the list I've had. I had a, uh, Thomas Tan. He uh, went to Cambridge as a postdoc. He probably found his true uh, metier, and uh, he was an entrepreneur, scientific entrepreneur, and, and uh, working in pharmaceutical industry consulting. Um, it's, it's such a challenge these days to, to, to carry on science as a full career. So the fact that I think nearly every student, this graduate student came out of my was carried on as a postdoc, I'd be very proud of. Mm, I mean, mm. Gemma White, who was a graduate student and a postdoc with me, she's taking a position at a local cancer pharma company and she's doing very well with that shift from cardiovascular to cancer. And so she's a project team leader in Allingham. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I, I haven't had that many, but a dozen graduate students, but I was very pleased that their first destination was always postdoctoral science. Mm. Uh, this is one or two that left uh, uh, straight to management consultancy. But uh, by and large, they, they, they had to go at science. And uh, just then after the first couple of years, then they had different choices to make. And, has, and so you, you, you um, outlived Herman Waldman, having arrived on, on the same Oh, day. he's still here. Uh, yeah, uh, yes, <laughs> but I mean as, as head of department. Right. Um, and uh, so uh, have, have you seen further changes under Matthew Freeman? Absolutely, and I, I think uh, certainly they're, they're both incredibly smart scientists. They're, they're both very interested in what other people are doing. And I guess uh, under Herman's 
headship. We saw a big physical expansion, so you know the, the building was upgraded, and we had the EPA wing and the MSTC and the the OMPI. So in a sense, it's really a big building and big expansion phase. And uh, I think you need certain types of leaders in that situation. And now that we have such a great built environment to do science, the challenge now is to bring new blood into pathology. And in a sense, uh, with Matthew's appointment, maybe we're more focused on cell biology as part of human disease. And so I think there's been a, a shift. And I think what I was really challenging now is with so many good people, in good young people in science, how can you keep them in science? How do we uh, make sure that they have career opportunities that, that were there for bright young scientists 10, 20 years ago? And uh, I think we still continue to attract really good scientists, all age groups. And uh, the challenge is to keep that going and to keep them talking to each other and working together. So I think now that we have a great built environment, it's now time to focus on personal interactions and scientific interactions to make the most of people coming to Dunn School can be the best scientists that they can be by working with other people. So this interaction with people with different skill sets, bioinformatics or microscopes, uh, constantly reinvesting in technology and uh, learning. I think that's uh, what's impressive in addition to the physical environment. Mm. I think you more or less preempted my final oh, question, I which do was apologize. no, it's quite all right, it's quite all right. But I'll ask it again, just in case you want to phrase it differently. Sure. Uh, which was a two-part question, really. How, okay. how successful do you think the Dunn School is as an institution, and, and what are the main challenges that face it in the future? So this is um, an interesting, as we say in the business, metric. How successful are you? So how do you find success? So um, Herman Wolman, a man of great wisdom, once said to me. David, I've, I've been thinking about this question of what constitutes success, and he says, um, I've decided that um, rather than being measured in uh, publishing bibliometrics, basically, are people jealous? <laughs> Do people want your job rather than their own job? And in that sense, I think we are very successful in the dance school because even within people, people look at the dance school and say they do great science and they have great Christmas parties. And so <laughs> they all seem to be pretty fun place to work as well as consistently producing high quality science and innovative science. So I'd say for me success is defined by not necessarily which journals you're publishing in but that you're doing good innovative science and you're enjoying it. And so I'd say I was very successful as regard that particular metric of success. Second question? The challenges. That oh the challenges is I think it's just it's just grown so big the whole challenges how we're training all these scientists as undergraduates and they're coming in as postdoctorals, uh, graduate students and postdoctorals uh, assistants, they're working hard. How can we keep their career, how can we meet the career aspirations of these people, how can we bring these young people forward in to become, to set up the labs of their own or to make an important contribution without necessarily having their own labs. And so that's the, the big challenge, I think. Um, Which is a structural problem for scientific It's a structural problem, I think. In, it so, so, so elite institutions, like ours, will attract the very best people. But then what do they do 
after that. We can't keep them all. Uh, and so I think that is a big challenge. And made more challenging by Brexit. You know, in fact, uh, you know, where are we going to find young scientists to keep the study of pathology or disease or cell biology going? Uh, can we keep them in the system? And contributing to our understanding. Mm. Yes, so no, I didn't talk about the the sort of national diversity of the Dutch. No, school, but I assume it's a United Nations. It is. I guess yeah. in Simon Gordon's lab when I came in, there were a lot of South Africans because he was a South African exile, and uh, so I think even over the time I was there, we saw people coming from Europe, and as I say, with sabbatical visitors like Tom Shaw, you got exposed to scientists from many different cultural backgrounds, many different training uh, institutes, and uh, that has always been, we've always been very, very lucky in Oxford that people want to come here to give talks, saves us having to travel around <laughs> the world quite so much, which is very lazy on my part, but you know, with the Rhodes Scholars and uh, all of these initiatives, we, we actually are very, very fortunate in, in being exposed to scientists from many different cultures. I think that makes it a really exciting place to teach and to do research. Uh, and this is a sort of add-on question which I should sure. have asked earlier. It doesn't really come at the end. Um, but I'm also looking at um, the, uh, the gender diversity in the, in the Dunn School and whether that's changed uh, in the time that you've been here. Yes, I, uh, obviously um, when you just rock up and as a postdoc and you look around, uh, yeah, there's always been a good mixture of um, male and female. And I think that the challenge comes when you go from being a graduate students, undergraduates in medicine, it's like more female doctors. In graduate admissions, I, I think it's pretty much, I, I don't see any major gender bias. But I think it's as you move forward into permanent post, mm, then mm. that is a challenge. And uh, I think the dance school is working very hard to address that issue and uh, to make sure that uh, everything is, is based around family-friendly policies, uh, which in a sense we never used to think about mm, uh, mm. before. Um, so I don't know, I'm probably not the right person to ask. I'm a white, middle-aged male, but uh, it never really occurs to me whether someone gender or uh, I just interested in people who are good scientists who want to do experiments and who want to talk about science. So for me, if they're male or female, if they're British or uh, foreign, it doesn't really make any difference. Uh, but uh, I get that is an issue for all UK science, how to uh, make sure that we're not losing very talented people because of their life choices, mm -hmm. whether having a family or uh, caring for relatives. And so um, I hope that there's this issue of unconscious bias. How can you be aware of it if it's unconscious bias? So I've been to lots of courses on that. But for me, it's all about the science. I don't really care about anything else. And if I get on with people, so it's probably because they both share interests in science rather than anything else. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that's a, the, the science is the driver and gender hopefully will fall aside as, a, as an issue. Good. Okay. Super. Thank you. Thank you.